This is our second and, I believe, final session on Ephesians 6, 23-24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we looked at last time. So now the focus on grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So, Father, we desire to be the recipients of this ongoing outpouring of grace, and therefore we ask that you would work in us a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and that it would be the kind of love that is immortal, incorruptible, imperishable. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I pointed out in the very first verse of this letter that, amazingly, all 13 of Paul's letters begin with grace to, and all 13 end with grace be with. Grace to you, grace be with you. And I guessed, I can't prove this, but my guess is that the reason is that as Paul begins to write a God-inspired letter to the church, he says, grace is coming to you right now as I write this and as you read it. And as he comes to the end of the letter and he knows that the scroll will be rolled up and people will leave the assembly and go out to live their lives, he wants to say, and the grace that you have now received will go with you and God will remain active in you and for you. That's my guess as to why grace with at the end of every single one of his 13 letters and grace to you at the beginning of every single letter. Only in this letter now, something different is part of the ending. Ordinarily, he would say, grace be with you, and the you would be left undefined. In fact, it's never defined in any of his other 12 letters. But here, he puts a qualification on who is going to be receiving grace, as Paul prays it down. Grace be with all who who love the Lord Jesus Christ with a particular kind of love, namely incorruptible. So let me linger on this word for just a moment. This word almost always throughout the New Testament is a word not primarily referring to a non-morally corrupt person, but a person who can't uh, perish who lives forever, who is immortal. So incorruptibility, imperishability, immortality are the usual connotations of this word. And I suspect that's the main meaning here, though I wouldn't rule out the fact that this love in some measure and then finally perfectly will be morally not corruptible as well. But here I think the idea is the kind of love that Christians have toward God and toward 
Jesus is the kind of love that lasts forever. In fact, it strikes me as a wonderful thing that he would end the very book on such a powerful, strong, eternal note. The love that is at work in you for Jesus is a love that will never perish, never fail. But the main thing to be considered in this session and in this verse is how are we to understand the relationship between grace, which we ordinarily think of as totally unearned, totally unmerited, undeserved favor, how is it then promised to us for having this qualification? It will come, it is coming, it will be with those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me back up and say a few things about grace and then try to answer that question. Let's look at the most fundamental text on the nature of grace, Romans 11, 4 to 6. What is God's reply to Elijah, who was complaining that I'm the only one left? Here's what God says. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So I kept them. They have faith and they haven't bowed because I kept them. So too at the present time, there is a remnant, faithful remnant, according to the election, God's electing purpose of grace. An election of grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would not be grace. So the, the essential meaning of grace is it doesn't correlate with our works. It is not based on our doing. It's not based on our action. It is based in eternity, God's election and flows to us freely apart from our activity. Here it is in Ephesians at the beginning, way back in chapter 1, very first note that Paul strikes. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's the election. And we're going to see it's an election of grace, just like he said in Romans 11. God elected us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So he had a purpose before him in love. And that purpose included that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So the reason the glory of grace gets praised is because that's what's going on here. Our predestination and our election are gracious. That is, they exist and they provide purpose for our coming into being and our coming to faith and our becoming holy and blameless and loving. They are all driven by prior grace. So the glory of grace is precisely that it precedes and creates what we are as Christians. 
including our faith, as we saw in chapter 2. By grace have you been saved through faith, and this, this grace and this faith coming into being is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. There's that works idea from Romans 11 again, so that no one may boast. There is nothing we have done that caused this grace to come to be. It saved us, and it saved us by giving us the gift of faith. So here's the way I would draw this. Here's, here's grace at the very beginning, before it, what, just eternity. Not us, not any of our doings. And that grace produced faith in us and unleashed from faith all the fruit of the Spirit and all the Christian life. And the question here is, what are we to make of this grace which seems to depend upon this love that we act? This is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and grace is prayed down and wished for with this. Grace be with all who love the Lord Jesus. And I would draw this love and put it right here. And I would say this faith is of the sort that loves or treasures Jesus above all. So this, this faith either has this kind of affectionate response to Jesus in it or is attended with it. In other words, as soon as it comes into being, this comes into being. That's where I would put it. And now, where does this grace fit? And I would say it fits right here. God is giving this grace to those who do this, and this is done right here by grace. Hmm. So I'm saying this is more grace. More grace. This is not, this is not the original grace. Original grace, and there's many manifestations of grace in our lives. The original grace created us, regenerated us, brought us to faith, enabled love to Jesus, and in response to our being that kind of person, more grace comes. Now, does that fit with what the New Testament teaches? And the answer is, indeed, it does. Let me look at some texts with you. Here's James 4. You adulteresses, so he's treating the disobedient Christians as though they had cheated on God, their husband. Do you not know that friendship with the world, so that's the other husband, or that's the other consort, is enmity with God, your husband? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy and turns God into a cuckold, cheats on God. 
takes his blessings and goes out and hires a prostitute? Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, God yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? We were made for God. He's our husband. He means for us to be faithful to him and not go sleeping around with the world. But though it looks like you're cooked, you adulteress, we're cooked. No, we're not cooked. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will exalt you. So, more grace. He gives grace to the humble. This devil fleeing from you is part of that grace. This exalting you is part of that grace. His drawing near to you is part of that grace. There's more grace. And what we must do in order to have it, although do is not the right word, is be humble. That is, grace comes, it flows to those who are undeserving, but are humble enough to receive grace as their portion. The person who has committed this atrocity and is broken and cries out, I need grace, I need the grace of ongoing forgiveness, and they submit themselves to God and they draw near to God and they humble themselves before God, what happens? He exalts them because there's more grace. Here it is in 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace. He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, Lord, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If you're humble enough to realize all my worries I cannot handle, I must hand them over to God and trust his care for us, that humble handing over trust in God's care brings down more grace. Now, what about this phrase, love the Lord Jesus? I'm arguing that this grace flows, indeed, to people who have a certain orientation to God, and here it's called love for the Lord Jesus. Consider all these texts. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, receive the grace of everything working for their good. 1 Corinthians 2.9, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. God has prepared future grace that is incalculably great. We can't even imagine how great it is, and it will flow to those who love him. James 2.5, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised? This great grace he has promised to those who love him. James 1, 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised. This crown of life. A great grace promised to those who love him. One more. 2 Timothy 4.8 Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. There is nothing unusual about what Paul says here. This is through and through the way the New Testament thinks and talks. When you love the Lord Jesus Christ, you are showing that your life got its start in grace and will experience more grace forever and ever. When our love is attached to the Lord Jesus, who is himself immortal, when we treasure, that's my definition of loving Jesus, when we treasure Jesus above all things, we are treasuring the immortal, the incorruptible, and the link between our heart and his heart makes our love incorruptible. We will be with him forever and ever, and it will be all of grace at the beginning and all of grace all the way along as we are humble enough to recognize in him that he is everything we need and everything we desire.